This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ruth Wishart. It's my very great pleasure to be chairing this event at the Edinburgh International Book Festival, uh, not least as I, and I shouldn't be saying this at this stage, not least as I'm a, a groupie of the guests, but there you go. Um, it's... Uh, I, I, I thought the practice was to set your guest at ease. <laughs> <laughs> that was what I was trying to do. Oh, okay. <laughs> Anyway, I think I'll just start all over again, shall yeah. I? <laughs> it's probably fair to note uh, that this particular guest has written a memoir which is somewhat out of the ordinary, or as a reviewer, uh, and, and a reviewer, by the way, who described himself as an erstwhile friend and colleague put it, um, this book does absolutely immerse the reader in the savage intensity of nature and its narrator's internal world. It just feels more like a forcible ducking than a wild swim. Well, I have to report to much enjoying this forceful ducking, even if occasionally, rather like watching uh, Spring Watch, you have to read it through your fingers. Um, <laughs> alongside his many TV incarnations, he's a doughty campaigner on a huge range of issues from shooting wild birds to population control. He's uh, managed from time to time to ruffle quite a lot of fur and feathers, uh, most notably among panda and cat lovers. And uh, he's currently engaged in a war of words uh, with Ian Botham over the management of grouse moors and the very suspicious disappearance of some tagged raptors. He's been, on his own admission, a sometimes troubled soul whose childhood was littered with nature-inspired obsessions from the life and death of a very beloved kestrel to otters, bats and dinosaurs. His parents, who I think sometimes get a bit of a, a tough rap in, in, in this book, um, nevertheless seem to cope pretty admirably with a son who swallowed tadpoles, <laughs> collected badger poo, kept skulls from roadkill in bedroom drawers, and once memorably boiled a dead snake in a much-loved soup pot. <laughs> All true. All the everyday work of a young naturalist. <laughs> he must be the only university student in the history of academia who only missed one lecture through illness, because usually, as we know, it's the other way around. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the extraordinary force of nature that's Chris Packham. Thank you. I think, Chris, if we may, we, we should go back to that childhood. I mean, you make a, a very fulsome acknowledgement to your father in particular, but both parents in the acknowledgement section of the book. But you were um, not a difficult child, but, and I don't mean this too pejoratively, a strange child with a number of, of um, serial obsessions, and that must have been quite difficult for both your folks and your sister to cope with. Yeah, I think it probably was. Um, it, it, with the benefit of hindsight, of course, it, that, that's certainly the case. But it, growing up in the 1960s and 70s, I can only presume that my parents thought I was relatively normal. Um, they did tire by the time I was in my early teens of my obsessions. I, I remember them leaving the table and starting to do the washing up before I'd finished telling them about some intricacy of the tawny owl's gut. Um, <laughs> And, and my sister certainly gave up on natural history studies when she was aged about uh, 10, I suppose. 
um, I drove that interest from her. Um, so, uh, <laughs> it, it, yes, and, and thinking back, I, I, I kind of did, did dominate that, the, the dinner table with my obsessions. There was no question of that. But my, at the same time, my parents were hugely encouraging. My father has um, a, an intense desire, or had and maintains it actually, uh, an intense desire to impart knowledge. He, he read prodigiously, um, and he, I was taught to read with a set of encyclopedias. We started at A, finished at Z, and then he tested me on everything, you know. <laughs> um, and I'm very grateful for that. It was intense, it was strange, um, I suppose. Uh, but um, I know when the Battle of Cressy was, and when the Battle of Agincourt was, and uh, all everything else. <laughs> so I suppose we should be grateful that you didn't do the 28 hours of guts before they started their meal. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was one occasion when I was at university that I'd begun a, a series of experiments with common shrews looking at their foraging capacity, whether they foraged optimally or not in terms of their energy expenditure. And given that these animals are small and have a high metabolic rate, the prediction was that they would make very careful and quick choices about which food they handled, ate. Um, and so in order to get them to, to, to feed instantaneously you had to make them hungry but not starving and in the case of a small mammal like a shrew that's a very fine balance and my mother was always late with the Christmas dinner so it would be meant to be served at one and then two would be in three and um, so I tried to time my shrew experiment on Christmas Day to to be immediately after dinner but my mum was running late and of course you can't wait for a shrew so um, the, the entire table was cleaned of all of the accoutrements and the holly and everything else and all the crackers and the shrew test chamber was put there and I conducted my shrew test before we had Christmas dinner. <laughs> so Possibly the adjective strange wasn't so enough as <laughs> after all. Well, the shrews behaved um, admirably and they chose exactly the right food and I got a good mark in that essay, so that was good. So all was well. Yeah, it was all was well. And my parents were very, very keen that I should progress academically from a very young age. Although I disappointed them initially because I wasn't able to focus on things which interested me. Um, but as soon as I was able to focus on the things that I was passionate about, then um, it, things went went more smoothly. But they did, I mean, um, despite these little local difficulties with the Christmas dinner, etc., I mean, they did seem to spend a prodigious amount of time taking you to the zoo, to galleries, to a number of, you know, externally you had quite a rich and varied life. Yeah, I'm very grateful f uh, for that uh, as well, of course. So, yes, um, although I tried to get them to take me to the zoo every single day, um, <laughs> my mother would take me to art galleries. I have a, a, a great interest in art, and I, I very much enjoy that. Um, she did also take me to the opera, I have absolutely no interest in the offer whatsoever. <laughs> um, so some things worked, some things didn't. And, and, and I think, again, I've tried to offer that to my stepdaughter. We went to all of those places. And I think, you know, you, you chuck these things out for your kids and they latch onto some of them, they don't others. And you can't make that choice for them. And my parents never did try to force me in any particular direction. But I'm grateful for the enormous amount of energy that they put into my education. They, they were very much of the mind that I went to school to do the basics, but I came home to put the icing on the cake. I think it might be a useful moment to um, tell the audience why it was that during your otter period, if I can put it like that, you weren't able to watch the film of the otters which was taken at the zoo. Yes, um, well, I, I had an obsession with otters, which the first book I read um, myself, although I'd had assistance because I was quite young, was Ring of Bright Water. And um, I became instantaneously fixated on otters. And needless to say, I wanted a pet otter. And uh, my mother made me a, a hideous uh, fluffy toy facsimile of an otter, <laughs> which the, the vision of which haunts me to this day. 
it was like an incarnation from some bizarre witch witchcraft um, event. You know, it was a voodoo doll of an otter. <laughs> Nevertheless, she tried. It was a nice gesture. Yes, it was a very nice gesture. It was a very. Ni- it was my birthday present. <laughs> But both my sister and I can barely bring ourselves to think about it. It was, it was grotesque. But uh, anyway, um, and uh, at that point in time, I was growing up in Southampton, and Southampton Zoo had a very small zoo and had uh, no otters. So I, as usual, wrote to London Zoo, and they replied to say, yes, they had European otter. And uh, I was absolutely enthralled, and I eventually managed to get my parents to take me to, to the zoo. We had been before, but obviously a repeat visit to see the otters. We got to the zoo, and it was a usual crowded day, and I got to the otter enclosure, and there, were no, there was no activity. And you know, At that stage, I was still impatient. I thought that you'd turn up at every enclosure and the animals would be parading, um, but they weren't. And then eventually I returned to the otter enclosure, and the otters were very active. They were very, very active. They were chasing each other around. There was a lot of sound. I was absolutely enthralled. I was so excited. And my father and I were there. He was making a Super 8 film. Um, my mother reappeared with my sister and immediately put pay to the situation. So we must leave uh, instantaneously the otter. We must leave the otter. I was completely perplexed and, 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 and infuriated, you know, I'd come all this way to enjoy these animals. They were performing great stunts and they were gone. And um, of course, I thought, great, well, my father's recorded this with his priceless Super 8 camera and we'll get to see it and I'll be able to revel in this in future weeks. But apparently the film didn't come out. <laughs> And then years and years later, when I was a, t- uh, a teenager, I was rummaging under the stairs in the cupboard and I found the old projector. We'd long since given up on the Super 8. And I found some films and I was projecting them in my bedroom on the floor. And the, lo and behold, the film of the otters was there. And it had come out. And what was displayed on the screen were two otters mating furiously. <laughs> I mean, very furiously, <laughs> fervently. And my mother was distressed that I was paying too much attention to the <laughs> copulatory behaviours of the, the lutrines. Yeah. It's got to beat porny magazines under the bed, though, hasn't it? Yeah, I suppose so, but I, I did used to read, well, uh, that, well, not pornographic magazines, but the, uh, but the, the ornithological equivalent. So uh, I was... <laughs> you mean you were interested in birds? I was interested in birds from a very young age, but they had feathers. And... Um, so I, I did always have a t- torch under my pillow for reading under the blankets when my parents have said it was lights out, you know, because they didn't understand that I didn't need to sleep as long as they did. So I, I was always flattening the batteries on my, on my you torch. You must have been one of the only uh, young boys, however, who was desperate to see um, a million years BC, but not for Rackwell Welsh. Yeah, I was all about the dinosaurs. LAUGHTER <laughs> um, I was obsessed, I remain obsessed with dinosaurs. They're the most exciting animals of all because they're extinct and therefore we can only really imagine what they're like. We've learned a tremendous amount, obviously, in my lifetime about my favourite dinosaur, T-Rex, everyone's favourite dinosaur. Um, And it's been, you know, tremendously reformed as an animal, what we know of its behaviour, its anatomy, everything. Um, But, yeah, I was obsessed with dinosaurs at that point and I saw the poster and I was forbidden from seeing the film because I'd obviously, Raquel Welsh is you know, doe-skinned bikini had no interest for me, but my parents um, imagined the film, in the film it would be ripped off by a ter- pterodon or something, and it would, I'd be heading in the wrong direction. Um, not towards paleontology, but towards pornography, as you say. Um, so I wasn't allowed to see it, and eventually, eventually I got to see it. I was tremendously disappointed. It was I- incredibly inaccurate. They had the wrong dinosaurs in the wrong period. There were... <laughs> 
humans fighting dinosaurs who are giant spiders and turtles. It was utter rubbish. Um, and it, yes, well, the problem thing, the thing was that in the interim period, for all that time I was forbidden to see it, I had uh, aged a couple of years, and when I did see it, I had no interest in the dinosaurs, but my goodness me, Wacker, wow, she's cleavage. <laughs> you know. What a formidable thing that was, you know. Can we um, just paint a picture for the audience uh, at this stage? Let's say from the years from, I don't know, 7 to 12 or whatever, uh, paint a picture of your bedroom on an average day. Oh, it's packed. Uh, walls covered in posters of the Apollo moon race and all of that. I was really into space, as every, all the kids were, I presume, at that time. And um, lots of posters, ID posters of birds and butterflies, which I'd tick things off and and stuff and then I had all my collections of skulls all of the clothes had been pretty much removed from my chest of drawers and they've been filled with my squadron of airfix spitfires me109s me262s all that sort of Thank stuff you. sorry yeah and um, <laughs> I've still got them <laughs> they live in shoe boxes now in my garage and um, and then lots of skulls and, and tanks. At one stage, the entire bedroom was lined full of tanks, full of reptiles, had snakes and lizards and all sorts of things. Particularly, um, we had some things called toke geckos. I'm not sure if they've got them at the zoo, but they were large gecko species, with quite large head. And um, when they bite, they hang on, as my father learned. And, um, <laughs> and they were frequently escaping, and we'd have to try and catch them. But it's quite difficult to catch a gecko, because they can run up the wall and across the ceiling. It was a great joy in watching my father trying to catch a toke gecko. <laughs> and then when he did, it latching onto his finger for about 15 minutes. It was great. Mm. Take it, uh, I think there were no volunteers to clear your bedroom at that stage. Um, no, I had to clean it myself. Um, I, I, my mother would sort of come in occasionally and inspect it and uh, chase the flies out. And, um, yeah, but no, it was down to me to, to clean it up. I, I was always one for meticulous order, so everything was always catalogued. And you still are. Yeah, so... Uh, the bedroom actually wasn't untidy. It was always everything was stored and ordered in every way, shape, or form. And so they didn't have notated, to. Notated, wasn't it? I mean, you had you had everything listed as to when it was when it when it was caught or when you, when you got it. Data. Yep. Data. And you're yeah. one of the few people I know who, on finding a dead bird in the gutter, is excited because that means that you can see how its feathers work properly. I like dead birds. I still like dead birds to this day. I know it's a paradoxical thing to say. I prefer them alive, very obviously, but when I find a dead bird, particularly of a species that I've not seen before in the hand, it's always very exciting. You know, you can look at aspects of its anatomy that you can never see in the field. And to me, it was always about trying to understand the things that I loved most more than, than, than I could by reading books and so on and so forth. So that first-hand experience um, is invaluable. And you, you get to f know the feel and the smell, and all birds smell differently and I can smell the difference between different species of dead bird, and that's a, an asset to me. I don't know what sort of it's asset, but I mean, you know. Certainly a fairly unique accomplishment. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think it might be an accomplishment which is dying out. I, I hope that there are still naturalists, maybe some present today, who, again, will pick up dead birds and smell them and, and, and investigate that. I think one of the problems we face is that um, young people now are, are discouraged from doing those sorts of things. The wretched hand gel comes out as soon as they touch anything dead or smelly. Um, and that sends a message out that it's dangerous and dirty, which, of course, it isn't. It's, it's fascinating. Um, and so what I fear is that at some stage in the future, you may be right, and there may well be people who don't know the difference between the smell of a tawny owl and a barn owl, and that would be a sad loss, I think. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's quite difficult. Maybe sad, but not tragic, judging by the audience <laughs> response. <laughs> <laughs>
you, you say in the book, which I mean, I, I said at the beginning of this that um, I had to watch Nature Watch and not to watch sometimes through my fingers, and that's true. But you, you're very, you're quite harsh on wimps like me. You say that you know people have just closed down their mind if they if they can't tune into nature and red and tooth and claw as it actually is. That we should really just. Uh, you know, focus on what's happening and not, and not turn away now. So what do you say to somebody like me that can't actually... I got my finger in the remote in case there's a nasty killing in the middle of the show. Mm. Um, well, for me, you know, I learned some time ago that the beauty of nature is not in an individual species. You can look at a bird or a butterfly or whatever it happens to be, whichever you know, thing you're drawn to, and they are obviously exquisitely beautiful, far more beautiful than, than, than we humans. I think that's what drew me to wildlife initially, was their perf the perfection of those organisms. But of course, in isolation, they're virtually meaningless. That's like taking a note out of a stave and worshipping you know, middle sea. It means nothing. It needs to be set in the context of where it, it functions. And therefore, if you take all of these animals and put them together, in, in that harmony, in that dynamic harmony, which is constantly evolving and moving, um, that's when uh, those animals uh, become uh, even more beautiful. And the greatest uh, beauty itself is that dynamic harmony, is that community of animals held together with the complex relationships between them, where they interact. And part of the interaction is the fact that some kill the others and eat them. So I would argue that although the process might be visceral um, and violent, it's also part and parcel of something which is intrinsically beautiful. So I can see beauty in the making of, of that predation. That's part of a process which is be almost beyond comprehension in terms of its beauty. But can you understand why some people watching it might fail to see that beauty? Um, I suppose if they don't approach it in a, as pragmatic a way as I do, if you're approaching it from an emotional context, and whilst I have the capacity to be incredibly emotionally attached to individual animals, my kestrel, my dogs, um, when it comes to observing other animals, I don't have that emotional uh, attachment to them. I can be entirely dispassionate, and so I can sit back and watch them tear each other to pieces and think, in a way, and forgive me, that's, that's a wonderful part of life, because the death is a part of life and that's very much what I was exploring in, in, in the narrative of the book because obviously when you're a child um, grappling to understand death, your own, your other human or, or animal um, is, is something which is, which is difficult and trying to establish the context and importance of death is very much uh, uh, a key, well the central narrative of the, of the book. You do see in the book um, that it's much easier to trust animals than it is humans and also that when you were a boy and you, I know you had a very difficult time at school and you were bullied um, that you felt in some ways you could only trust animals you couldn't trust humans I mean have you have you emerged from that place um, not fully I mean if you I, I have uh, an Will all, uh, and have always had very intense bonds with other species of animal. That doesn't mean that I have, haven't had bonds with humans. I have, but they've always been more fragile. Animals never lie to you. They never li let you down. They don't seek to manipulate you. Well, they do actually try to get food off you all the time. <laughs> How can I say my poodles don't try and manipulate me, honestly? Even last night they managed to get an extra chew. Um, but 
no, I think that there, there, was a, there was a purity in that relationship which you can't, I can't have or haven't had in, in a human relationship. It doesn't mean that I don't have strong human relationships and, and that they aren't equally as valuable, but they are different. And I suppose backed into a corner, I would always say I felt more secure in my relationships with other animals. Because it was um, the kestrel and the time you spent with the kestrel and the untimely death of the kestrel that, that in many ways... I suppose made you wonder about the wisdom of of extending love to to anything too deeply. Yeah, but and it did, and and I was terrified by the thought of ever doing it again when I lost that bird because it was the epicenter of my universe. I loved it more than everything summed total, um, and I lost it, and the loss was catastrophic. And in the aftermath of that, I initially, as perhaps many people do, determine never to offer that much again, because then you won't have that much to lose. But of course, that's a, a fallacy. Um, you know, you must generate that much again and, be, and, 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 and somehow reconcile the fact that you will lose it. I love my dogs now as much as I love that kestrel. Itchy and scratchy, by the way, are not in kennels. No, no, they're being pampered somewhere, <laughs> um, I hope. And um, the uh, and and yet I have to face their their forthcoming loss, and uh, I think again part of the exploration, uh, uh, the narrative in the book is about how it took a, a long time to be able to even discuss that, um, because it was w was harsh, and the in people like myself do form incredibly intense relationships where pretty much nothing exists outside of that. So the losses are perhaps slightly more difficult uh, to deal with. We're also not really programmed to discuss that a loss or um, with other people. So we tend to go into ourselves, and as a result, sometimes we get quite seriously depressed about it. You're painfully honest in the book about the difficulties you have had in interpersonal relationships, the difficulties you have with, you know, I think you said both with empathy and, and sympathy and, and you and you go on to talk about a time when I think somebody else suggested it to you but you, you matched um, some of your personality traits with the symptoms of Asperger's and given that you've made that journey and acknowledged that I wonder how much that impinges on your professional abilities because we see you obviously interacting in what seems like an entirely uh, normal fashion with your co-presenters on television. Has, has that been difficult? It was initially, yeah, it was very difficult, um, going back to my mid-twenties, which was when I realised I'd have to reconcile uh, those problems, or try to deal with them. And up until that point, I'd managed to initially get bullied by people and then hide away from them. And, and you know, I did, a, I did um, only miss one lecture at university, but for most of the time I said 20 pee-pees twice a day to the bus conductor and nothing else, because I didn't interact with the other people at that point. But then, of course, I got a job, and a job in television, which is very much a team sport. Um, and therefore, in order to make it work, I sat down on one of the first days that I'd started doing a immediate wild show in a shabby hotel in Bristol and thought, this isn't going to work unless I am able to modify my behaviour, just to do very simple things, um, so that I can integrate into a, an, uh, a working environment and, and, and make the progress that I wanted to make. And initially, um, it was exhausting. It still can be exhausting. There are certain things that I have to concentrate on doing or not doing, as the case may be. Um, and um, and I'm very fortunate that I, uh, you know, 
normally work with people who are sympathetic to that and uh, relatively tolerant but at the same time you know I mustn't be a nuisance I, ha I have to be a hopefully a pleasure to work with so therefore I'm constantly monitoring and manipulating my behavior I'm very fortunate that obviously you know the degree of autism that I have is therefore manageable some people aren't able to manage that and very sadly in this country despite their enormous abilities only 15% of autistic people are employed what a catastrophic loss to society because you know we have skills which other pieces of society don't have and the reason that we're prevented from exercising those in the main I imagine I'm not an expert but in the main I would imagine are pretty much social skills in other parts of the world and in certain fraternities, our people have been more socially flexible and have um, greatly benefited from, from people who, who have those, those sorts of skills. So it, it can work. And one of the reasons why I'm happy to talk about it openly is that I hope that we'll see a change. When I grew up, such conditions weren't diagnosable. It wasn't in the public domain. The, the actual condition had been recognized many years before, but it was only in the late 80s and 90s when I sort of initially self-diagnosed. Um, or oh, my girlfriend diagnosed, actually. <laughs> and, um, One or two clues, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was in the medical profession <laughs> and, um, and said, I've got you nailed. Um, but the... Um, <laughs> the but at that point, it was only becoming, you know, in, it came into the public domain, people were realising it, and now I think it's there. And, and certainly teachers, educators um, and parents have a much greater capacity to recognise the symptoms and hopefully work creatively with perhaps young people or even older people to make sure that they can make the best out of things. It just seems to me, reading the book, and it's a, it's a cracking read, uh, but it, it's, um, it's such a long journey you've had to make because you were an, a, a young schoolboy who would talk obsessively about the things that interested you at the time, sometimes to the point of boring your parents rigid from what you say yourself. And then you were at school where um, you know people made fun of you because of these obsessions, and you had a really tough time, and you felt excluded from the kind of parties and teenage stuff that other kids were doing and then you were at university and you weren't talking to anybody but the bus driver as, as you pointed out so that's an you know and it sounds as if it's been enormously lonely at times and yet you say it's not because of the animals yeah I mean I think to be lonely you have to crave the attention of others I didn't want the attention of others therefore I wasn't lonely I think isolation and loneliness are different things and the isolation was a actually looking back on it was probably the best thing at that point I, I, I didn't understand why I was different I didn't understand why I wasn't sort of allowed to join in I, I was upset by that I was angry actually very angry um, and it took some time to begin to you know use that anger creatively and when I say some time by the time I got to sort of 16 17 I realized that it was going to be there was no point in being angry with people I didn't you know need anything or want anything from them so I, I wanted to turn that anger into something very positive I, I still that do that today I'm angry about the way our birds of prey are treated on grouse moor so I'm trying to turn it into something positive um, and so yeah um, but I, I think again by the time I got to my mid-twenties I was beginning to understand the situation and then I was able to be more sort of uh, practical about changing things and things got got better but I mean ostensibly I do the, what I was, was doing at that dinner table the only difference is now that rather than bore four people around a dinner three other people around a dinner table I now bore the entire audience of Springwatch so <laughs> I've moved from four to th nearly three million people so 
progress. By talking obsessively about wildlife. <laughs> it is. It, it, the, the, the life you led subsequently, though, did have um, did lead to moments of, of quite serious depression. And, and in the book, um, you divide it up into periods about your childhood, periods about your young adulthood, but also periods where latterly you were in therapy for a while because of attempted suicide. And you wrote about that in a way that was quite heart-wrenching, um, but as I said earlier, also painfully honest. What, what prompted you, and I'm glad you did for all kinds of reasons for the other people in that situation, but what prompted you to put it down as, to use your word, as viscerally as that? We don't lie. We find it hard to lie. I can lie now. I've learned how to do it. Um, it. I still find it very painful when people lie to me. So when I sat down to write the book, the idea of fabricating something to make it sound better for anyone is pretty alien to me, really. It's cheating. It's unpleasant. It will lead to circumstances which will upset people. Because that's what happens to me if I get lied to. I mean, the thing is, we're easy to lie to. My partner lied to me last night about something. She says that my stepdaughter was splitting up with her boyfriend and then immediately laughed at me because it's, it's the least likely thing that's going to happen at the moment. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's just that, you know, it's difficult for us to read other people sometimes. And therefore, we are easy to be lied to. We don't pick up on things like that. Um, I've tried to get better at it, but as I said last night, I fell hook, line and sinker for some pathetic little trite lie. Um, so when it came to writing things down, there, I, there wasn't any other way to do it. Um, and when I'd made up my mind that that was the, uh, the story that I was going to tell, um, I exercised my memory to the best of its advantage and, and, and wrote down pretty much what happened. I can't tell you it was verbatim, those sessions. I didn't record them, but I remember them in implicit detail, and one or two were, had notes made in my, in my diary. But um, I think the, the thing is that the reason that the... Ultimately, the reason that those events occurred was because, again, comes down to the Asperger's, that, that during the period of time when perhaps... Um, it would have been better to communicate with other humans to better understand the condition and the events that were taking place. That was not an option. It was never going to happen. So things got put away and never dealt with. And when other events later in life recurred, which um, basically led to all of that stuff resurfacing, there was no framework, no protocol to deal with it. And so that, as I got older and I got to a certain point when I thought, again, I'd reached, a, I suppose, a degree of emotional or intellectual maturity where I thought, OK, I've got to solve this problem now because if I don't, next time maybe I won't be here to solve it. So it was that simple. It was, again, a calculated decision to think, I've got to understand at this point what the issues are. I need to understand them so I can address them. That turned out to be quite a painful process, but nevertheless a successful one, I hope. Obviously, it hasn't been entirely tested, but let's hope. And then... Um, and that would give me an ability to go forward. And that was something that should have happened when I was 14. But there was no capacity for that to happen in, in 1974 or 5, you know. But the first time that you contemplated suicide, you, you see very frankly that you, you were thinking about the impact it might have on other people. It would almost be a, a, you know, the ultimate act of, of vengeance for the, the things that had made you angry. Mm. But the second time... Um, it wasn't like that at all, and it was you. You were almost. You seemed almost content to have got to that that place. Well, I think so. I think that. I mean, again, I'm no expert on this, um, so don't read it in any way like that. But I think obviously some people um, go close to taking their own life because they 
want the attention of others or they do want revenge on others that have, they perceive have harmed them. And initially, that would have been the case. But I suppose that the reason it didn't happen was because I couldn't be assured of that vengeance working. And, um, and therefore, it didn't happen. On the subsequent occasion, couple of occasions, then it could have happened because it wasn't about anyone else. And people always say suicide is selfish. It's, not, it's nonsense. There is no one else there at that point in time. If there were anyone else there, presumably, you'd feel an attachment to them and you would, might therefore perceive some responsibility. But there is no responsibility because there is no one else there. So it, at that point, there's nothing selfish about it at all. It's merely about yourself. And I felt that I was in a position whereby I'd had a sufficiently rich life to almost justify it. I mean, I grew up in a two-up-two-down, in well, three-up-three-down um, house in Middenbury, reading book-bond tea cards, and I found myself in those rainforests illustrated in the cards, watching those very birds. I can't say at any point that I haven't had in a life of an enormous riches, far beyond my comprehension. And at that point of time, at a stage when I was abjectly miserable and chronically depressed, I thought, okay, fair deal, you know, I've... I've, I've had an, I can't complain, I have no platform for complaint whatsoever in terms of what I've been able to see, enjoy, encounter and experience in my life. Thankfully, the dogs um, were there and, um, and, and I've now enjoyed further riches. So that was of a great asset to have them there. And did being able finally and, and belatedly being able to discuss all this in, in such intimate detail with the therapist, do you think that's killed these demons for you now? I don't know. I hope so, obviously. I think initially when the therapy finished, um, it took some time afterwards to actually digest it all. It was relatively traumatic. When you've gone a lifetime not telling anyone about anything because you don't really relate to human beings in that sort of way, and then you tell a stranger um, things and you tell them the entire truth, it takes a little while for you to learn the entire truth. I hadn't heard that truth before. I'd been hiding it. So... I would say that it may, be, it may have been a couple of years afterwards that I suddenly sort of thought or felt in any, I felt any empowerment having gone through that process. It wasn't instantaneous, not a quick fix, I don't think. And then in terms of writing it down, was it cathartic? I, I don't think so. It, for me, it became a process. Um, I had an idea of the narrative. I'd set myself, I wanted to make a book, wanted to make something out of words, and I sat down to, to complete that. So that wasn't People have asked, did you write this as a form of catharsis? Certainly not, not at all. Um, I wrote it because I was trying to write a good book, and, and, and that was it. And so during the process of writing it, um, I was detached from it, largely. And um, even when I did the audio book, which I meant I had to read what I'd written, mm. um, which I had many times, of course, but that was the sort of first time I sat down and read it without tearing it to pieces and criticising every third paragraph and comma, um, then uh, I sort of just psyched myself up to read it and I was able to detach myself from it. There's some paragraphs, Chris, that just kind of leap off the pages at you. I mean, you, you d describe yourself as being securely unhappy, but you also said something that I, I found quite arresting. You said people's craving for stability yield squalor rather than sparkle. Too easy contentment gave them more of the excitement uh, gave them none. Sorry, gave them none of the excitement of a struggle against the odds, none of the allure of being plagued with uncertainty, or teased with the appalling option of giving up. Now, that's almost the polar opposite of what most people would want. If you're with me, you know they wouldn't regard it as uh, as not struggling. They wouldn't regard that as some kind of penalty. Mm. Yeah. Well, 
<laughs> I, I, I sort of I would disagree then. I, well, basically, I, but I'm just interested as to why you think they've got a kind of, if you like, much less fulfilled life if they don't struggle. I can't say they have a less fulfilled life. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I personally would perceive it that way, but I'm not entirely sure. I've, I've always shied away from any form of contentment and stability. If you get near it, I tend to shake it up a bit. And, um, and I, I like the idea of struggling. I like the idea of having a, a very determined purpose and a need to achieve things. And if you, I mean, there's nothing more dissatisfying than the realization of your dreams. And, you know, even on simple terms, which is. See that again? <laughs> there's nothing more dissatisfying than the realization of yeah. your dreams. What do you do next? People say, I take photographs, I take still photographs, and I'm a perfectionist, and, and I, I work really hard. My ambition is to continue to improve my technique as long as I live. I don't ever imagine I should take a photograph that I'm pleased with. But even today, I've had emails from people. I've asked them for if I can use some of their photographs for a project, and they've sent me a... And then one of them said, I've got this brilliant picture. And I just think, okay, well, if you've got a brilliant picture, what are you going to do tomorrow? You know, what, if, what, how can you... If you've got the ultimate photograph, it's, if it's brilliant, what, what, what do you do next? It's not brilliant. There's always room for improvement. And so, therefore, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's about not giving up. It's about continuing to strive to improve or to achieve what you're set, setting out to do. And if you reach a stage where you become content, then I, I can only imagine that with that comes lethargy and slovenliness, and, and therefore you wouldn't be driven as, uh, and as passionate. So if, if, if the need to strive... Is, is what brings you satisfaction of a kind. Yes, exactly right. So it's a, I suppose it's a, it's a different way of acquiring the same degree of um, what? I don't know what I was going to say, comfort, but I don't like that much either. Um, so, it, But it's, it's about, I suppose, it's about going to sleep and waking up and thinking that you've still got a purpose in life. And I, I, I need to wake up in the morning and think I've got something to do, not that I've achieved anything. You know, we, I've been campaigning, as I briefly alluded to, um, about the illegal persecution of birds of prey on grouse moors. We've had a, permission, uh, a, a petition which needed to reach 100,000 signatures. It reached it on Saturday morning about two minutes past ten. Um, I'm just thinking about what I can do next. Um, you know, that's one small milestone, I hope, in, in terms of improving the, you know, the, the shape of our landscape and the welfare of our wildlife. But that's not job done. There's, there's loads more to do. So it's, I'm just thought immediately, that's why I was asking for photographs. I'm on to the next job. I don't mean this in any kind of trite way, I promise you, but does all of this, this need for striving, this endless need to strive and to be better and to get better in every way, does that make you quite difficult to live with? Um, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, again, what I, I have learned to do at the expense of a number of relationships is to moderate my behaviour within that relationship. I think I'm very fortunate to have a partner now who largely entertains um, and is often amused by the sort of Asperger traits. Um, not always, but in the main. I'm very fortunate to have raised a stepdaughter who's grown up with it. And I think there were a, a number of times when it might have been difficult for her, but now she accepts that and laughs at it and um, and also has seen I hope I hope um, has seen some of the benefits from it the enormous energy that I put into her education um, hopefully it might pay off and um, the uh, but yeah I would say so there's probably some handicaps there but also some benefits you know we obsess we're honest we're you know we don't lie we're fully committed you know I, I 
the thought of let, letting my stepdaughter and my partner down is so such an anathema to me that I would do everything I can not to do that. So there are benefits too. I mean, the fact that they can't really move anything in my house because I'm going to put it back to exactly where it is. <laughs> if I come in and they've, and they've sort of done that, I have to sort of go like that. But um, Remind me how many chairs you have. Well, I've got a lot of chairs, but um, in, in, uh, my stepdaughter came in and the last time we were at the house that I'm meant to live in, and she said, um, you know, we have 29 chairs in this house, Chris, and I'm only allowed to sit on three of them. So, yeah. <laughs> I like chairs, but they're not always to sit on. Some, some of them are to look at. <laughs> no harm in that. I've just realised that I'm absolutely monopolising it because I'm utterly fascinated by what you're saying, but I think it's time to let the audience get some questions in. Could we have the lights up? And... and I know there's a lot of hands up already, but it'd be really grateful if you'd wait for a microphone to come. There's two in the middle there that would be quite useful to start with. Thank you. Hi, Chris. Really interesting to hear what you've been saying. Um, you mentioned earlier this afternoon a phrase, dynamic harmony, about animals living in that really nice harmony. Um, I just wondered what your views are on... We have, I think, in England, we've had a badger cull. Um, there's obviously a deer cull in Scotland, and in Scotland they're talking about reintroducing hopefully the wolf and the lynx, back into that dynamic environment. I just wonder what your views are on culls generally and about reintroducing species of animals that perhaps that, that dynamism isn't working anymore? Yeah, well, we live in a manscape in, in uh, pretty much every part of the world now. We're influencing that. If we're not touching it directly, we're, we're changing the climate, which will have an influence on it. So we live in a, a man-made world, and therefore we've upset that harmony. And as you say in the UK take the case of deer, uh, long ago we removed their natural predators, lynx and wolf, uh, lynx for small deer species, wolf for all of the deer species, and as a consequence of that in some areas we have a, uh, an overpopulation of deer and there is no doubt now um, that they're damaging the environment, they prevent woodland regeneration, they damage the woodlands themselves, they have a negative impact on woodland bird population and butterfly population, all of which has been scientifically measured and published and, and we therefore have a, a, a pretty good understanding of that impact. So in order to maintain the richest mosaic of life and habitats, we have no choice but to take um, matters into our own hands in the absence of those predators. So culling deer is a necessity. Uh, there is no doubt about that whatsoever. Um, in some parts of Scotland, where the issue is quite profound, uh, people have been working to, uh, to, to, to improve things. And they've fenced the deer out, they've culled and cut the numbers, and we're seeing uh, regeneration taking place. And... Uh, it's, we're beginning to get a, a healthier environment again. In other parts of Scotland, um, unfortunately, that, that hasn't been in taking place. Obviously, in an ideal situation, we would reintroduce the absent predators, but unfortunately, since they've uh, disappeared, lynx about 800 years ago, wolves, last one in Scotland in the 1740s, allegedly, um, the world's moved on. Um, and there are lots of roads, and there are lots of people, and there's lots of farm stock. And if we reintroduce uh, these animals, they will have an impact on us. And uh, people are largely intolerant of animals impacting upon us. Um, our answer, invariably, if, if something uh, has the temerity to, to get in our way, is to kill it, um, which is very disappointing. So I think that in the short term, the likelihood of reintroducing wolves is far-flung. Um, it's a shame because it would be a very interesting experiment and we could manage it to minimise impact on humans and farm stock, but I don't think we'll be allowed to do that, unfortunately. I think with lynx, which have been successfully reintroduced into many European countries, very successfully, 
one or two failures, but not in the main successful, um, then there's a chance we might, we might see links, and that would be very, very exciting. But we do need to win over the hearts and minds of, of a certain group of people who are at the moment claiming that they'll be rampaging down our precinct, tearing down children and other such nonsense. Um, but it's about education. As I say, it's about winning hearts and minds to make that sort of uh, pro uh, progress. So culling is a, very much a, a part and parcel of modern life. That's what we have to do. When it comes to the badger cull, well, things are slightly different because I think that we should, if we are going to cull animals, we, sh we should base the necessity and the degree and the method on good scientific foundation, research, um, independent research. And the independent research shows that by culling badgers, we won't improve conditions in terms of the transmission of bovine tuberculosis. So I oppose the badger cull on scientific grounds. I don't oppose the deer cull on scientific grounds. It's very much horses for horses, and sometimes we don't always have the answers immediately available to us. But what we do have is a skill set out there of people who we can employ to, to find those answers out. And I think that conservation needs to be far less... Um, risk-averse. We need to take a few chances. And where that's been done overseas with more ambitious uh, conservation projects, it's paid dividends. So rewilding, reintroduction of animals such as beavers and lynx and so on and so forth have made uh, a, a tremendous positive difference in the environment. And also for humans too, um, in terms of ecotourism. I mean, let's face it, I in an idealistic situation, uh, if we did have wolves in Scotland, they're a very popular animal in some camps and not in others. Of course, they do polarise people's opinion. But there are an enormous number of people who would spend a large amount of money to go and see them. So there would be uh, benefits to, to the communities as much as there would be deficits too. So, yeah, I don't think I'll live long enough to see wolves, but hopefully long enough to see lynx. That would let's, be great. Let's take the lady behind now for me. Um. I'm intrigued by the narrative structure and narrative position that you chose in the way you wrote your memoir. You shift between first and third person and also write some events from the point of view of other people, and that in particular really intrigued me. Did this come naturally, or was it a conscious decision to write it this way? Uh, no, it was, it was a conscious decision. Uh, at the outset, I felt uncomfortable writing in the first person. I don't like myself very much, so writing about I, I, I sounded... I mean, I'm a lot more interested in other species than I have myself. Um, so that would have been difficult. And, but, and although I also recognised that I had a bit of a problem um, in that obviously it was going to be hugely beneficial if I could exercise the benefit of hindsight, but I didn't want to do that retrospectively. So what I thought was, if I used real people, all the people in the book are, are real, they were real characters. Some of them are still alive, some of them I still talk to, and some of them are still talking to me. Um, <laughs> And I, um, so I wanted them to, do, to, to achieve two things. Firstly, to be able to see that time period from an adult perspective. So in the 1960s, I was massively into Thunderbirds. I didn't really know what was going on in the pop music world or the political world or anything else. I was massively into that and my, and my snakes. Um, and, and, and so I, uh, it was a way of, of, of showing, you know, of painting a broader picture of what the world was like in, in the 1960s and 70s. And the second thing was that it gave me the ability to um, portray myself from an adult perspective without it being retrospected. So it wasn't me looking backwards, it was them looking at me at that contemporary period of time and, um, and describing what they saw. So I think it achieved three, three purposes on that account painting the scene, 
um, providing a, a, an adult perspective of a, a young person who can't see that at that point in time, and also alleviating my discomfort uh, from writing in the first person. I chose to, wrote the, to write the Kestrel, uh, the Kestrel part of the narrative, which is the only piece which runs chronologically, is written in the first person, um, and I wanted to do that so that it would be immediately obvious that that was important, and it was very personal and very intense. And there are other, various other pieces that I've written in the first person, and those, again, are all very seminal parts of the narrative. They're very important junctures. And so I use that then as a form of uh, that tense um, to, to highlight that and make that hopefully apparent, if, if even subconsciously apparent to the reader. More questions? Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing that with us, Chris. That was really uh, moving. And uh, I, I'd just like to ask, do you extend the persecution of raptors to mountain hares? Yeah, I... I, I do. Um, mountain hares are not legally protected, so it's a criminal criminal act, obviously, to kill any of our birds of prey. It's not criminal to kill mountain hares. Um, the problem I have with the hares is the fact that on some of the estates, they've been exterminated. The thought is, although I haven't given to understand, but don't quote me on this, it was a, a conversation I've had uh, with someone who works in that field of research, but the thought is that the hares have the capacity to transmit a disease to grouse through a parasite. Um, that, as I understand, as I say, but don't quote me on it, has, has yet to be proved. But on that account, um, some of the estates have removed all of the mountain hares. Now, obviously, that is um, well, it's an appalling method of management. The hares exist there because they can, rather like cockroaches and rats and pigeons and everything else that we might call pests. Um, if they're there, they're performing a function in that ecosystem. If you take them out, that ecosystem is therefore not fully functional. And it may get to the point where it's not sustainable. So exterminating a species to protect another is just basically poor ecological management. And therefore, I am severely critical of it. In terms of going out and shooting a few mountain hares for the pot in a sustainable way, I'm not critical of that in any way, shape or form. It's not illegal. Um, so... Again, the problem with driven, very specifically, driven grouse shooting, not shooting or grouse shooting, but driven grouse shooting, which requires this high-intensity management of the landscape and of the wildlife, is that um, it's ecologically destructive, it's costly to us, and it's got its criminal element. And that's why I've been so vigorous campaigning against it. I know you don't want to revisit the, the whole thing with, with Ian Botham, but, but I think it would be interesting for us to know what you think has happened to these raptors who were being followed um, by satellite tagging. Well, I, 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 I know exactly what's happened to them. They've been shot, trapped or poisoned. Um, and I don't think there's any amb ambiguity about that. I can't prove it on an individual basis because we didn't have the corpses, but even that is, is a sign that something nefarious has happened. When you're satellite tracking a bird, with the technology that we have now, we're able to identify where they are in the world, plus or minus 15, 10, 15 20 metres. When the tag stops working, it doesn't mean that you can't then go and find it. And when the researchers and the police have gone out to the areas on grouse moors where the tags have failed, they've failed to find the tag, which means that it's been removed. So it's therefore highly likely that the birds have been poisoned, trapped or shot. And again, the sheer abundance of birds which are disappearing on grouse moors um, 
79% of, uh, uh, of satellite tagged hen harriers ha have disappeared on grouse moors in recent years. 79% have disappeared on grouse moors. And golden eagles are disappearing uh, very frequently, white-tailed eagles on, on grouse moors as well. So satellite tagging is allowing us to um, understand the problem, but unfortunately not get the prosecutions and to have the law upheld. But we know exactly what's happening, and, uh, and so does everyone else. Thank you. All questions? Yes, somebody on the aisle there, please. Thank you very much. Uh, with uh, the UK uh, leaving the EU, will that have a beneficial or a detrimental effect on wildlife? Well, that remains to be seen, but we're obviously hoping that it will be beneficial if it comes to fruition. Um, the European Union has provided us with a, a quite a, well, a very, very good framework for protecting um, our landscape and the species that live there. We've had the Habitats Directive, which is European legislation, uh, which covers a huge area of the UK, and within that, uh, about 70 odd species are specially protected, again under UK, uh, uh, sorry, under U U EU legislation. So we uh, have greatly benefited from from that. If we leave. Um, obviously, at the moment, we're unclear as to what will happen with that legislation. Will it be renewed and redrawn? And if it is renewed and redrawn from a, a solely UK perspective, will it be as rigorous and as useful? We sincerely hope that it will be, but of course, we're concerned that it may not be. Um, not that European legislation is, uh, is you know, foolproof or doesn't fail. It, it, it does fail. And unfortunately, the EU hasn't been as rigorous as it might have uh, and should have been in uh, making sure that it, that, that, that it was more robust. So we have instances in the UK. There's one, a grouse moor, Walshaw Moor, in, uh, above Hebden Bridge, which has been uh, drained and burned, and the internationally important blanket bog has been burned. And this has been reported to the European Commission, who are currently investigating. And there's a very good chance that they may take the UK government uh, to task for allowing this, 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 uh, this landscape to be damaged. So sometimes it's not really been all it's cranked up to be. I mean, ideally, again, and idealistically, perhaps, uh, we would move forward and, and strengthen the laws to protect the environment. But for some reasons, and I'm sure you might imagine what they are, I'm sceptical that that might, might take place. So I think amongst all of the problems that we've got to face in conservation and, and, and care for the environment, we now have another one on our hands, as if we haven't got enough to do, um, and that is monitoring and trying to help implement um, a new set of legislation to protect the UK's wildlife and habitats, which is, I mean, given the resources we've got, is, again, we could have done without it, to be honest with you. We've got time for one more question. Is anybody over there because you've been kind of neglected? Gentleman in the front row here. Thank you, Chris. Um, there's been so much in what you've said which, which I totally agree. However, as a veterinary surgeon, I would take uh, issue with your suggestion that animals do not lie. They do. <laughs> uh, and the most common lie is to insist that they're okay when they're ill or injured. Uh, for obvious reasons when they're wild animals, but they still go on doing it when they're tame? Um, well, unlike Mr. Botham, I, I would never argue with an expert. So... <laughs> I, I will defer to you on that one and, and say that, you, that you're right. And it's, it's, of course, a great sadness that they, that they do not betray the fact that they are ill. And my partner, who keeps exotic animals, is 
frequently disturbed by the fact that one day they look fine and the next day, um, you know, they might be a bit off colour. And when she investigates the, the, the reason why they are, they've got a sniffle or snivel, she finds that they're terminally ill and they die on the operating table having never been brought round from the anaesthetic. Um, I think the thing is that, as you know, I'm telling you this, I'm telling the audience, of course, um, uh, or any of the audience that aren't veterinary surgeons, um, <laughs> the, um, is that um, you know, to, to, to exist and to survive in the animal world, the wild animal world, um, you have to be absolutely at the top of your game. And you, any tiny weakness, any tiny flaw, any broken feather or cracked claw will be an, an incapacity to you. And so these animals exist on that plane of perfection until the simplest thing goes wrong and then they just fall off. And, and therefore, they, they have to, in a way, not consciously, but they have to mask any symptoms of their fallibility um, up to the point that they that they just die. So you're absolutely right, it is an ob observation. They mask that, that illness from us. And that makes it tragic sometimes when we're, particularly if they're companion animals, obviously, when we take them to the vet and we think that they're a little bit off colour, and unfortunately you have the terrible duty of telling the owners that in fact it's a little bit more than that, which is, which is very sad. I'm sorry we're going to end on such a downbeat. <laughs> well, uh, let's not end on, on, up, uh, on a downbeat because, you know, the joy that companion animals bring us, I think, you know, OK, they lie to us, but, but it can be, un can be unparalleled. And I think that their capacity to enrich our lives and, for us to, and, and, and the, the ability that we have to share our lives with them on a very personal basis, the relationships that we have with, with, with any animal is, comes down to the individuals, the person and that animal, and they're unique. And I, I get a tremendous amount of pleasure out of seeing other people enjoying those relationships. I don't love their dog, I don't love that person, but when I see those, whatever relationship it is, but when I see those people together interacting with those animals, it's always really reassuring and it gives me some hope that there, that there, there is uh, a significant part of our population that we can draw upon who genuinely care about the welfare of animals and therefore going forward into the future we'll, we'll, we will make more rapid progress and positive change. Thank you for that. Mm. That's so much better. You know, just, I don't want to pause your applause because I'll ask you for some in a minute, but I just wanted to, to this is a, rem, it's a remarkable book anyway, it is a remarkable book, but it's also got a remarkable cover as you can see from the way that it's drawn and uh, that was designed by Mr Packham as well, a man of many talents. So he will be able to talk about the book and uh, to talk to you about the book in the signing tent which is left and left again. And, and before we thank Chris properly, could you also give a big thank you for the woman who was trying to keep up with this rapid-fire <laughs> delivery. So her name is Linda Duncan, and she's probably going to lie down in a darkened room now. Um, please, one last time. I use no scientific names. Did you notice that? <laughs> <laughs> one last time, your applause for Chris Packham. Thank you very much. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.